you so much, Master Dean. Well, good morning. It's so exciting to be here. If you want to come to church, just volunteer to speak. You get to come to church. <laughs> oh, I hope and I trust that everybody had a really encouraging Easter as you reflected upon the sacrifice that Jesus was for us and the victory that his resurrection is and what that means for us. Jesus was the first of many brethren, us being you know, his brothers and sisters. And just as the Father did for Jesus, did in Jesus, he has done in us. He has raised us with him. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. This message was, was birthed out of a place, uh, just a moment in time I was having a, a few weeks ago. Um, I don't know if you ever go through this, but I was just kind of having a moment where I was really forgetting about how for the Father is for me, how for the Father is for us. Just one of those moments when I was distracted from the truth, distracted and you know, had my sights, my focus on, on my worries, on, on problems, on concerns, on things I've done wrong, distracted, doubtful, discouraged, and kind of ashamed. You know, just that place of hopelessness. And I don't know if that ever happens to you. Um, when the eyes of your heart are turned away from the Father for a moment, and you find yourself there, but just in his grace and his love, he just um, blessed my heart with a passage of scripture that continues to encourage me. It, it redirected me in such a profound and powerful way, and it just continues to do so. Um, every time I just forget how for us the Father is and find myself maybe in that, that place of discouragement. Um, this is the kind of passage for me that, that reinstated confidence. I mean, real confidence in, in who I am in him and what he's done. The kind of confidence where your heart just naturally overflows with rejoicing, no matter what the circumstances are. So we're just going to hover today on this passage, Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. I'll just read it for us now today. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So again, I, I just want to really hover and spend time with with this word today. 
And I just feel in my heart that we are to just look at specifically, you know, what it is that the Father has done. Why he's done it. How. And my personal favorite in this passage, when he did it. And then just take a little bit of time at the end to to notice any response that the Holy Spirit might be encouraging your heart with today. So what has the Father done? Just look again at uh, the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6. It says that he has made us alive together with Christ. He has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's made us alive. Um, as I read this, this portion, I just, God just kind of showed me a picture of just a twig, just like a, like a dead branch sort of thing, which you might see a lot of around your, your place right now as the snow is gone and spring is approaching. And after that crazy windstorm we had this year, I have a lot of dead branches around my property. And it just, just showed me just a detached, dry, old, dead branch just on the ground, you know, just laying there. Sure, it's got, you know, all the ingredients for life, perhaps, but, but totally lifeless and, and helpless all on its own all by itself, just waiting, essentially, to be returned to dust from which it came. And um, in and of itself, it's, it's helpless. Nothing that it could do to um, make itself come alive. But the Father, you know, he takes that branch and he makes it alive. But he doesn't just make it alive and then, like, stand it on its own and and say, okay, now, now go. Now just you know, grow roots and um, sustain your own life and protect yourself and uh, grow, grow little sprouts and leaves, and there you go. No, he, he, he makes it alive. And it says that you, he, unites, he unites us. He unites this branch together with Jesus, who is the vine. So he grafts, the, he grafts this branch he's made alive into the vine. So now it's grafted as one with like the center vine, the, the, the center trunk of the tree, so to speak. And it is now a part of, it is now continually receiving from, from the central vine that is rooted, receiving strength, receiving nourishment, receiving all things. And from that, because it's reunited into the very life of, of Jesus, we're united into the very life of Jesus, grafted into the vine, now we are, we are continually receiving, and through continually receiving from him, we, we are protected, we, we grow little shoots, we, we um, blossom, we grow leaves. It's, it's kind of similar to, to um, like just think of like an embryo, an embryo by itself. It was just sitting there, um, in and of itself, totally helpless. Sure, there's, there's potential for life there, but it can do nothing of itself, nothing at all. But God comes along and makes it alive and, and literally attaches it to the womb of himself. We are like the embryo, just attached to the very womb of himself, now connected in every possible way, physically, psychologically, emotionally, socially, 
financially, economically, spiritually connected in every way, receiving, 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 and growing life, attached to the umbilical cord, united together with him. We're united together with him. So he's made us alive. He's united us into the very life of Christ, and then he raises us up with Christ, and he seats us. He seats us beside himself. We're seated beside the Father because we're in Jesus. We know where Jesus is seated. Ephesians 1, 20, 21. Beside the Father. Jesus is seated beside the Father, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name. That's where we are. That's where we are. So, so he's made us alive. And then united us into the very life of Christ raised us up in him and seats us beside himself. Why is this so important to understand? It is in our human nature to want to know that we matter, to want to know that we are right, to want to know that we have a place and that we belong. Um, Jesus' disciples, as they started to recognize the power and the authority that Jesus had, um, before recognizing that it was a spiritual kingdom that he was building, not necessarily there to, to just overthrow the Romans and, and take the physical seat at the political table there at that time, but as they saw his authority, they started to squabble amongst themselves to see who would be the highest in the kingdom. A couple of his disciples, uh, John and James, even came to him once and said, Jesus, you know, when, when you take your throne, can, can one of us be on your right and can one of us be on your left? Their mother then approached Jesus as well and said, will you please give this, my sons, the sons of Zebedee, you know, a place, in, you know, beside you, one on your right side and one on your left side. It is in our nature to want to know that we are seen, that we're given a place, that we, are, that we matter and that we're right. I remember distinctly one thing that um, in one of my undergraduate courses, social psychology, years ago, I'll never forget when my professor just said, she goes, all conflict essentially is competition over resources. All conflict essentially is competition over resources. It is so important that we recognize that we have not just been made alive and united together into the very life of Christ and raised up and seated beside the Father. Because it is in our nature to want to claw and fight our way into knowing that we are right and that we have a place. But I'm telling you that God has made you right. We are made right and we have been given a place. You don't need to fight for it. There is no one else above you. There's no one else above you. You are right beside the one who is far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name. There's, there's no one else above you. You've been seated right there. It is done. You don't need to fight for it. There's no one else above you. And also, and this is really important, there's no one else below you either. There's no one else above you, and there's no one else below you. 
we are all seated right there at the same level beside the Father. You know, this last year in isolation, I don't know about you, but I've had just the blessing of being able to have some really intimate time with the Father. You know, this religiosity just kind of like falls away. It just sort of melts away as you have just daily, continual, intimate connection and encounter with Jesus, what it's all about. You know, and from this, maybe like, like me, I don't know, like, you know, I've I've begun to discover my own unique way of being in the way. You know, my unique relationship that is, you know, meaningful to me with Jesus, you know, as a part of the larger body. And maybe you have too. And, you know, when, as we come back together as a body physically, like, I can't wait to hear about your journey with Christ and your testimonies and what's working well for you and what's right for you. And I can't wait to share with you, you know, my journeys and what's right for me, what I'm experiencing with Jesus. But you know what? It is so totally cool and okay if the unique way for me is just not the unique way for you. I don't need to be right. I'm already made right. And you don't need to be right. You're already made right. You know, we are just a whole spectrum of people. As far as the east is from the west is how many unique beings that are among the body, and we are all going to express our love for and relationship with Jesus so very uniquely. And so, you know, Jesse has just poured years into, into trying to just like gently dismantle any kind of clutter and hindrance and religiosity that gets between us and the love of the Father. And so as we come back together as a church, Let's be careful to not let little shoots of religion like pop up all over the place. And let's just continue to be free and confident in knowing who we already are, where we're already placed, and love and honor that in each other. So why has he done this? Why has he done this? If we take a look at verse 4, and then we'll look at verse 7. Verse 4 says that, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He made us alive, united us with Christ, raised us and seated us. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So it's who he is, essentially. He has done this because it is who he is. Because it is just simply his character. He is merciful. He is love. And from that place of who he is, he makes us alive, unites us with himself, raises us, and seats us beside him. You know, as I was preparing this about a week ago, just over a week ago, my, my younger sister was in labor, and she was in the process of giving birth to my now new nephew, Bo who we're so very thankful to welcome into this world. And I just want you to imagine for a moment, it just made me think of the force, the force um, that exists you know, in, in a woman when she is at the end of, in this case, my sister's case, a 36-hour long labor. And you know, she's 
you're fully dilated, baby's in the birth canal, baby's ready to go, you can see the head, mom is just ready to bring this baby into the world. Somebody try to stop her. Somebody, somebody try to convince her at that moment not to push this baby into existence, into this world. Do you think that, that there's anything inside of her that would hesitate? She's doing that just, ah, uh, just because, just out of obligation, just because there's nothing else to do, just, you know, someone's convinced her. There is nothing in her entire being, and there's nothing more powerful that could stop her from bringing this child into the world. And that is just, that just made me think of like the kind of force as I try to like understand like who God is and therefore what it is that he so intentionally is doing and desires to do and cannot do anything but. And that is because he's so rich in mercy. He is love himself. His very character is the force behind wanting to make us alive. He has no desire to make us dead, to, to punish us, to leave us alone and isolated and far and distant and to demote us. That's not who he is, but that same kind of force that that mama has to push that baby out and bring it into the world, that is, that is just like a shadow of the force that the father has and who he is to want to do the same for us. Make us alive and keep us there abundantly seated beside him. So we know that it is who he is to do this. But there's another reason. There's even more. There's something greater in terms of why he does this. It's more than just who he is and because he loves us. It's more than just who he is and who we are. It's about a bigger picture. It's about building his kingdom. Verse 7 says that he does this so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When we take on his grace, when we receive, which is our only job, really, just, just to receive, we become a display of his grace for the ages. When we walk in that, we are a light that shines, that attracts others, and his kingdom is built. So, so line up. And like, come and get it. Because this is, this is not him just doing it because he just wants to do you a favor. Just because he loves you. Just because, well, you know, like, you need it. This is about so much more than even just you. So like, line up. Come and get it. Come and get it. Burn the fig leaves. And when I say that, I just mean like, you know, Adam and Eve, when, when they sinned, um, when they brought sin into the world, you know, like, and they, they felt that shame and their natural inclination was to run away and the father kind of had to woo them back and they, they, they sewed fig leaves and they covered themselves and they're like, we'll take care of this ourselves because, you know, we screwed up. So, you know, we, you know, so we made our bed and now we got to lie in it. It's like, burn the fig leaves. The lamb has been slain. Put on Jesus. You are a display for the ages to come. He's building his kingdom. So just receive it. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. So how has he done this? Verse, the latter part of verse 5 says, It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. Remember that dead branch? What could it have done in and of itself? 
come alive, unite itself together with Christ, be raised and seated on the right side of the Father. There's nothing, there's nothing in that branch that could have done it in itself. There's nothing in that embryo that could have done it of itself. The Father did it without anything that you have done. Without anything that you have done. By grace, by unmerited favor. This is the center of the gospel. This is the gospel. See, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where there's sin, God's like, well, I'll have more grace. Where there's more sin, God's like, I'll, I'll have put even more grace, and it's going to triumph all the more. Because Jesus was one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. One sacrifice for all sin, even the future, even the stuff you haven't done yet, for all time, all of it, 100%, complete. Um, I was having a, a conversation with someone close to me like a couple months ago, someone who's gone through a really, really hard time, a hard year. It's been a lot of loss, big transition, lots of uncertainty. She's waiting for her, for, for that sea to part for her. That was a really awesome word. Anastasia, that was an awesome word. She's, she's standing at the shores of the Red Sea, just going, part, like part. And it's not parting, you know, just not parting yet. And it's hard, and, and again, just like I was doing when God gave me this passage, you know, it's easy for, for you to get distracted from the truth, for your, for your mind to be set on your worries, on your problems especially on the things that maybe you have done or not done, and you know could be connected to some of your difficult circumstances, that feeling of regret that I have screwed up so bad. I have just screwed up so bad. What can God do for me? Like, I, you know, God just bear the consequences and just deal with the sentence. And yeah, like there's, there's these... There's obviously natural consequences that come from our actions, but it changes nothing. But the fact that the Father's grace is unmerited favor. He did it for us before. He'll do it for us again. And I just felt in myself when I was talking with her just this. It just welled up inside of me to just encourage her and help her to see that, first of all, this is going to be a time that she's going to see the Father's love like she never has before when we are weak, when we are strong, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, triumphs over it. You know, for 2,000 years, we have been preaching the gospel. And yet here I am sitting across from a sister in Christ, telling her how God's grace does not run out. His favor does not run out. He will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, he continues to part the Red Sea. His promises are unconditional. He's there for you. He cares for you. He has plans for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And again, that's not conditional. He did it for us while we were yet dead. And she looked across from me and she said, do you really believe that? And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if it was like, wow, that's amazing. Do you really believe that? Or it was like, that is so contrary to anything 
I've experienced or like believe or you know anything to this world that do you really believe that and it's true it's it's contrary to anything in this world this world is an eye for an eye it's you reap what you sow it's you know you, you get out what you put in and and while those things are, are are true there's more there's grace there's the father's unconditional love that's what Jesus represents this is the, the heart of the gospel and we continue to kind of clutter it with conditions, but there's no conditions. One sacrifice for all sin, for all time. It is finished. It is finished. So this is my favorite part of this passage. This is the part of the passage that really encouraged and blessed my heart the, the most. Verse, uh, the beginning of verse 5. When did he do this? When did he make us alive, unite us together with Christ, raise us up and seat us beside himself? It was when we were in our least worthy position, when we were dead in our sin, when we were dead in our transgression. The same as when he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus became sin for us. And that's when the Father raised him from the dead. It was not when you were at your prettiest, at your nicest. It was not when you thought or said or did something that was pretty good. It was not a time when you were kind of just, you know, finally figuring it out and getting it. It was when we were in our least worthy position, dead in our sin. It is then that he raised us. Then when he made us alive, united us with himself, raised us and seated us beside himself. And so he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is encouraging to me because I don't know about you, but usually I feel the most discouraged when I've screwed up. I feel pretty good and pretty hopeful when I know I've like dead and said all the right things and done a really good job and been a super nice person and I that's when I feel it's so easy to feel confident in that place but it's when I'm really faced with my humanness my mortality my weakness that's when it's easy to get discouraged but that's when the father reminds me hey you know it was when you were dead in your sin that's when I chose to make you alive unite you with myself raise you and seat you beside me. That's when. So, just a little illustration of this. Um, just a little story about somebody by the name of Saul, also known as Paul, also the vessel through which this passage of scripture was, was written. Just want to tell you just a little bit about his beginnings in Jesus. We first are introduced to Saul um, in Acts chapter 8, very beginning of chapter 8. It is at a time when um, people were stoning. So, so Jesus had already, he had resurrected, he ascended, and now his disciples were starting to, to build the church, to spread the good news. And one of his disciples, Stephen, um, was being it was accused of blasphemy because he was saying that Jesus was God and he was brought before the Sanhedrin to give an account um, but instead he gave this an incredible speech and uh, they decided to stone him for blasphemy 
And while doing so, those who were doing that laid their, their garments at the foot of a young man named Saul. Saul, who was very much giving approval of the death of Stephen. Saul was a Hebrew, called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Roman citizen, a Pharisee, very, very zealous, very, very learned of the law, very familiar um, with, with the Jewish law, and very zealous to uphold it and to do everything he can to stop the spread of followers of Jesus. It says that on that day when Stephen was stoned to death, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Later in verse nine, or chapter 9, we see that Saul, Saul was busy breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And so he decided he wanted to go from Jerusalem to a place called Damascus, which was a city in Syria near, near the Holy Land. But before doing so, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any people there who belonged to the way, who belonged to following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. And the purpose of that would be so that they would be tried and uh, hopefully found guilty, and then they would be put to death. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So at this point, the Lord could have stopped Saul in his tracks. Maybe just he could have smited him. He could have just like snuffed him out of existence. He could have punished him in some way. He could have, you know, had maybe a gang of robbers come beat him up and leave him for dead. Maybe cause him to have some horrible disease. But instead, he introduces himself to him. Jesus comes and introduces himself. And in that very moment, what we're about to see, out of his place of being totally dead in his transgressions, beyond dead, I mean, he's pulling people into the grave with him. He introduces himself. He makes him alive. He unites him with him. He raises him. And as we'll see, he seats him right in that place of authority. He says to Saul, he says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You might read that as a punishment, but I don't know about you, but... <laughs> little incubation period, I would say. Nothing but just him and Jesus. No food, no distractions, just him and Jesus. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. 
The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas in Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So you'll see Ananias was a little hesitant, but he ends up going. So then, um, so he goes to the house and enters it, places his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul then proceeds to spend a few days with the very disciples in Damascus that he sought out to come and arrest. And then, at once we see that he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God, in the very synagogues that he went to to arrest people and drag them back to Jerusalem and have them killed. When we are dead in our sin, Jesus just introduces himself, makes us alive, unites us with him, raises up and seats us beside him. Anyone would know it would be Paul, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. I'm just going to read the passage one more time and then just take one minute to, to see what the Holy Spirit might be sharing with your heart. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the incomparable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you're like me and ever fall into that place of discouragement or doubt, hopelessness, wonder if, if he's really for you. He is so really for you. He is so really for us. While we were yet dead, before we could even breathe a breath or believe a belief, it was then that he saved us. And so, Father, and I just, want to, I just want to give you a chance right now to just, just turn your eyes away from me. Turn your eyes of the, your heart just towards the Father. Turn the eyes and the ears of your heart towards the Father now. And just notice and consider if, you know, what encouragement he might be laying on your heart. What truth he might be speaking to your heart. lift you up this morning. So I encourage you to just hold it for a moment. Just meditate on it for just a moment. Don't let it slip away. Just hold it.
bless you. Father, thank you. Father, I just pray for all my, my family here, your family, our family. You would bring each of our hearts every day, no matter how many times it takes, <laughs> every moment, to that place of confidence, the truth, who we are, what you've done, and what that means. That place of confidence to the point where we just, regardless of any circumstance, regardless of where we're at, what we've done, what we've not done, what's happened, what's not happening, that we can just truly rejoice with an untethered heart. Knowing that you are always eager for the force of who you are and preparing to part that sea. <laughs>